Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, will appear before a parliamentary committee on Friday to testify on the issue of foreign interference in Canada's elections. Plus, the President and the Board of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation resigned on Tuesday morning, blaming the fallout from donations the organization received, which had ties to the Chinese government. A shortage of Canadian farm operators is looming as more than 40% of farm operators will retire over the next decade, according to a new report. The Edmonton Public School Board plans to spend $1 million to fund a virtual school, which it claims will address systemic racism. Hello Canada, it's Tuesday, April 11th, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Rachel Emanuel. And I'm Lindsay Shepard. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. Katie Telford will finally appear before the Procedure and House Affairs Committee on the issue of foreign interference in Canada's elections on Friday. Last month, the Liberals launched a filibuster in an effort to keep the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff from testifying at committee. The motion to summon Telford almost became a confidence motion. However, the Prime Minister ultimately backed down and Telford eventually agreed to appear before the Parliamentary Committee. Telford's appearance comes as the President and the Board of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation resigned blaming the fallout from donations the organization received, which had ties to the Chinese government. On Tuesday morning, the organization released a statement which said, quote, The circumstances created by the politicization of the foundation have made it impossible to continue with the status quo, and the volunteer board of directors has resigned, as has the president and CEO. Last month, the Globe and Mail leaked CSIS documents, revealing China's favorite outcome to be another Trudeau minority government term. The leaks also implicated 11 candidates who benefited from foreign interference. Furthermore, the leaked documents revealed that a wealthy Chinese businessman and advisor to the Chinese government made a donation to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation worth $200,000 in 2016. The foundation returned the donation when it became public in 2023. Well, it's going to be a big week in Canadian politics, Lindsay. Are you expecting some big revelations coming out of this committee hearing? I find that often when witnesses come, they're so tight-lipped and they don't say very much, especially when it's a very heated, controversial issue like the one we're going to be looking at on Friday. Well, it's definitely going to be something to watch, Telford's appearance. And it's just very interesting that we're seeing these two developments come at the same time. Uh, Telford agreeing to come appear before committee, finally. Uh, to testify about foreign interference. And then we also see basically the entirety of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation resign. So as you said, the entire volunteer board of directors, the president and the CEO, and they're being very quiet about why that happened. I feel like there's more to the story here. Just saying politicization is not really an explanation. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good point. And who knows, there might be more coming down the pipe about the story that we haven't heard at this point, you know, on the topic of the entire volunteer board of directors resigning, as well as a president and CEO. I'm wondering how damning this looks for the prime minister. Do you think this is something that's going to impact him with voters? Or do you think that he's pretty much in a safe zone with the issue of Chinese election interference? He's probably lost about as much support as he's going to at this point. Well, I think there's still time for more information to come out. Originally, the leak said that it implicated 11 candidates. So far, we've only heard about the possibility of Han Dong, the Liberal MP who's now sitting as an independent, 
and now he's even launched a defamation suit um, saying that he's not affiliated with, you know, Chinese interference. I think we've heard about Vincent Key from Ontario, but there's a lot of other names that we haven't heard about yet. A shortage of Canadian farm operators is looming. 40% of farm operators will retire over the next decade, according to a new report. A report from the Royal Bank of Canada, Boston Consulting Group Centre for Canada's Future, and the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph states Canada will be short 24,000 general farm, nursery, and greenhouse operators. The report estimates that 66% of producers do not have a succession plan in place, leaving the future of farming in Canada in doubt. The report recommends Canada bolster agriculture education in order to build a pipeline of domestic operators and workers, and further, it also suggests Canada will have to rely on immigrants to fill the shortage of workers by accepting 30,000 permanent residents by 2033. What do you think, Rachel? Is this something we should be concerned about? This is actually a huge problem in Canada. We've been hearing about shortages in the labor industry and trade workers, particularly in farming, for a number of years now. And every year, the numbers seem to get worse and worse. Now we're looking at this story at a time when food prices are already inflated. So this is not going to be good news for Canadians. I think one of the issues that we have to face when we're looking at a story like this is so many kids are under pressure to go to post-secondary institutions nowadays. And a lot of those students don't need to be there. They're not really interested in their studies. They, they're just there because they feel like they have to be there to get a job. It's time to start encouraging young people to get back into the trades and to fill these jobs like farming and other industries. Or the Canadian government is going to have to take a serious look at immigrants and start bringing over educated and skilled trade workers for our farms to fill this supply. Yeah, I mean, the problem with farming is, I think of it as something you kind of have to be born into, just because the equipment, the land, this comes at costs of millions and millions of dollars. And also the practices. Uh, sure, we can boost agriculture education programs, you could go into a, a university farming program. But, you know, for me, let's say, I didn't grow up on a farm. I don't have any knowledge of farming practices. I would be really starting from scratch if I were to just enroll in a farming program. And even then, how would I gather the money to open a farm? I mean, you know, the loan programs they have can only go so far. It's definitely a difficult industry to break into due to the cost of the equipment and the land, as you mentioned. But I think if a young person had an interest in it, they could absolutely pursue that. I worked at a actually rose and tree farm when I was a kid. A lot of kids work there. You know, you pretty much got started as young as you were legally allowed to work in Ontario. And a lot of us spent our summers working there. So if someone had taken an interest in that, they certainly would have had an in and been able to learn some skills very quickly. And I think that's something that we can see with the farming industry is if young people are interested in it from an early age, they can already spend their summers working on it. You know, maybe it doesn't necessarily look like young people opening their own farms right away, but get started in some sort of internship program. I think we really need to encourage those types of programs as opposed to saying to every young kid, you need to go to post-secondary institution and you need to spend, you know, $15,000 a year on that type of education when these jobs are also so high paying and you won't necessarily need to go into that type of post-secondary debt to accomplish them. Yeah, I'm definitely with you that too many people feel like they need to go to university just to have even personal worth. Like, in Canada, we have a culture that kind of looks down on people who don't go to university. And I think we need to change that because there's kind of a wealth of knowledge and experience you can have in so many other areas. And um, we need to open our minds to that. And, you know, just I'm also skeptical of any kind of report that claims that immigration is the solution to something. 
Um, you know, if we're also going to be bringing a million new people every year, uh, you know, who are temporary residents and permanent residents, um, that's going to increase the need for food and farming, I would assume. But then yet they're saying the solution is to bring immigrants also to be the farmers. So it just kind of seems like a snowballing problem. So I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of that. Parents and students hated it during the pandemic, but it looks like a virtual school may come back in Edmonton. The Edmonton Public School Board plans to spend $1 million to fund a virtual school, which it claims will address, quote, systemic racism. According to a board of trustees of Edmonton School Division Agenda, the board will give $1 million over two years to fund virtual schools. In its first year, the program would fund 200 students. In a report, the board says that virtual schools rethinks the purpose of school and acknowledges that traditional conceptions of schools are hindered by a largely Eurocentric worldview. It further says that virtual school will respond to challenges students face in a traditional classroom setting, like anxiety, mental health, poverty, transiency, cultural responsiveness of curricula, and pedagogy. It also says that space in the region's high schools are limiting capacity. Following two years of intermittent remote learning, a Horace Mann report from October 2021 found that more than half of U.S. public schools, K-12 teachers, said that the pandemic resulted in a significant learning loss for students, both academically and socially. Further, in November, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith said she won't permit schools to move classes entirely online anymore after hearing parents and students have told her they desire a regular school environment following the pandemic. This story just kind of makes me chuckle of all the things to spend money on $1 million to fund virtual schools when it seems like everyone is so happy to be finished with that. It also reminds me of how critical race theory says values like being on time are white values and that those are things we need to move away from with their views that schools are hindered by a largely Eurocentric worldview. I don't really understand what this school is seeking out to achieve. It seems like it'll create more problems than it will fix. What's your take on this, Lindsay? Yeah, I mean, to give them the benefit of the doubt, I could see why you would maybe want a virtual school. Um, let's say you have students who are living in a really rural area and maybe they're part of a farming family, but they still need to attend school. You know, you, you would hope that something like this could work for them. Of course, there are costs, um, which were mentioned, is that uh, they're, you're less able to be socially adjusted when you're not attending school. Um, but then kind of all that benefit of the doubt I had goes out the window when they say it's going to address Eurocentrism and systemic racism and they're going to, uh, you know, center indigenous practices and, and all that. It, it just seems like it's going to be ideologically captured. Um, and then furthermore, I mean, to say that this is something that could be a solution for students who struggle with anxiety, mental health, etc., I, I don't really like that idea because I think you probably have to go to school. I remember being like anxious to deliver, um, you know, speeches at the front of the class. It was very anxiety inducing. But today, as an adult, I don't really feel much anxiety at all when I give a presentation. It's just something you have to work through. So to say, you know, these students who you suffer from anxiety need to just be shut-ins in their room with their laptop. I don't know if that's going to be a great outcome. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think that's so much of what we see in today's culture. When someone is struggling with something, we make that their entire identity instead of saying, oh, there's actually a solution for this and you can work through this issue. In this case, I would argue that you're exactly right. Students that are struggling with anxiety and mental health should 
absolutely be in school. That's the perfect setting for them to learn how to deal with those issues, which they will face again when they go to work and enter the workforce as an adult. I also think it's very revealing that one of the reasons the board lists for the virtual school is that space in the region's high schools are limiting capacity. Kind of makes you wonder if maybe this is really one of the main solutions for the limiting capacity in high schools and sort of just buried in the report and they've come up with all these other fancier fluffy terms to explain why a virtual school is needed. Oh, you're totally right about that. Major red flag. Like if if they're having school space issues, then well you need to start thinking about building physical schools. Absolutely. Well, that's it for today. And don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media. You can do that over at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening and have a great day.